Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I'm delighted to say that we're joined this week by Harjun Chang, who is one of the most widely read economists in the world. He's the author of uh, a number of internationally best-selling books, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, most recently Economics, The User's Guide. He's someone who's known for challenging the conventional wisdom, not just in economics, but also the way that economics is presented by journalists, by politicians. Hajin, if we can start with something that you wrote, I think it was just before the election That's right, yeah. in The Guardian, where you were looking at some of the myths that get floated a lot of the time, but particularly at election time, mm. about money and economics. One of the things you talked about there was tax. And it was very striking because I hadn't seen anyone put it quite as explicitly <laughs> as this, which is that we're used to a particular phrase, which is the tax burden. That's right. Yeah. Basically, that tax is a burden. And you pointed out that it's not just, I mean, it's, in a way, it's obvious yeah. that the Conservative Party are going to talk like this, um, because that's how they see it. But that Labour and even Labour under Jeremy Corbyn mm. have kind of accepted this rhetoric, because Corbyn says, those who have the broadest shoulders must carry the biggest burden. Right. You think that we should talk about tax differently. So if we're not going to call it a burden, mm. what is it? Well, you should uh, see it as a price that you pay to have bundle of public services, you know, these days, the government offers a huge range of services from national defense to old age care, from nurseries uh, to high tech research and development. You know, so with uh, our tax uh, payment, we are buying this bundle of services. And of course, I mean, I can see why uh, some people are not happy with it because it's a bundle and therefore they cannot uh, exactly opt out of one bit and buy only the things they like. And uh, in the modern redistributive system, those who have higher income tend to get uh, less for what they pay than uh, those who are poorer. So I'm not saying that it's as uh, straightforward as, uh, I don't know, buying a takeaway curry. But the rhetoric that is uh, very striking because, uh, you know, in the balance sheet, uh, you have to uh, <laughs> look at uh, the assets and liabilities in the same way that uh, when you're uh, talking about taxes, you have to look at both sides. I mean, what are you getting for this? You know, this is why, despite uh, having 10% top income tax rate, Paraguay is not a magnet for uh, the world's riches. Yeah. So if it was just a burden, exactly. people would move to the place yeah, where it was the lowest burden, exactly. and, and they don't. That's right. And yet the politics of it, it's hard to imagine a politician making the case that you've mm. just made. And I think the evidence for that is that even Jeremy Corbyn, exactly, yeah. who, if any politician was <laughs> going to make that case, it would be Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. He struggles to articulate it. Yeah. So why is it? I mean, th so various things, and we'll come on to austerity in a bit, because austerity is, a, I think, one where the ground does seem to be shifting. But it's really hard to imagine the ground shifting on tax. Mm. And is it partly because what you describe, which is, as it were, a dispassionate appraisal of costs and benefits is not the experience. I mean, people's experience of taxation is different in that it's just, the, in a sense, it's a complex system. You hand over money, but yeah. it disappears. It, yeah, yeah, it just yeah, yeah. vanishes into the administrative yeah. structures right, of the state yeah. Yeah. and you can't trace it out yeah. again. I mean, is there is there any way around that? I mean, people occasionally say, we now have the technology, it ought to be possible to inform people much more clearly and track much yeah. more clearly how money moves through this system. I mean, is, no, no, that, is that one way that we could... 
we can, and some years ago, the, one of the most popular political proposals was uh, the Lib Dem proposal for earmark tax uh, for education. Yeah? So that we are going to take 2% more of your income, but they all will go to education. So some countries do that to raise a particular tax. But yes, I mean, I think the difficulty is the complexity of the system. And people really don't have time and the energy to go through government accounts and say, by the way, why did you? Yeah. So I think the more important thing is to shift the rhetoric. I mean, I think there are two reasons that uh, why this has been so difficult to shift. One is that the more recent dominant rhetoric that describes the government always as inefficient and dysfunctional and even corrupt. Because of this rhetoric, people stop uh, seeing the benefit uh, side of it. But I think that there's something deeper. I mean, probably that you could call it uh, more instinctive, which is that, you know, in the old days, I mean, before the Industrial Revolution and the rise of the modern state, taxes actually were just almost theft, you know. The Lord comes and takes uh, things away. And yes, I mean, he might provide some minimal kind of defense uh, against uh, marauding armies. But other than that, you didn't get anything from it, yeah? But over time, the government started actually providing real services for the taxes. Yeah? I mean, initially, it was that broader things like infrastructure, basic education, maybe a little bit of help for the research. But you know, now, I mean, in many countries, the government is uh, the biggest uh, provider of uh, many services. And I think that, that people need to be told that. We need to make the process more transparent and increase accountability and whatever. But please do not think that this is just uh, money that government takes away and burns in an incinerator. <laughs> so how do we change the rhetoric? Because one of the other issues now is that, yeah, we're, so we're not, no longer living in an age where someone comes and takes your money and you never see it That's again. Right. And the benefits are there. But we're also living in, people put it in different ways, the end of the age of deference, a kind of anti-experts mm-hmm. age, a period where people are quite easily roused to anger about the thought of other people taking certain kinds of decisions for them, including about how their money is spent. I mean, that's clearly part of Mm. politics. It's been a part of modern democracy all the way through, but it's grown over recent years. Mm. So if you're going to change the language from it being a burden, you also have to challenge the thought that people don't like other people Mm -hmm. taking fundamental decisions, including about values, but other things too, on their behalf with their money. So what do you call it (laughs) that can can shift the language from a burden Mm without people then focusing on that other side of it, which is, it's not just a burden for me, but someone else is deciding for me. Yeah, so you will have to make a public goods argument, if you like, and talk about the cost savings. So the first public goods argument is that there are some services and products which is best financed collectively through a centralized body, because these are goods that you can say that you don't want, and then still be able to benefit when the time comes. So let's uh, think about the flood defense system. You know, you can say, well, I'm opting out of this system and, and not pay the relevant tax. But it is impossible for the government to say, well, we are going to build this system so that number 47 on Willow Drive is not protected uh, from flooding because... <laughs> they didn't want to pay the tax. Yeah. So there are some goods like that, you know, the national defense, flood defense, which from which uh, the non-payers cannot be excluded. So some of these things have to be done through taxes. Yeah? The second argument, the cost efficiency argument, is that there are some things uh, which has uh, what economists call economies of scale. As the provision becomes bigger, 
it becomes cheaper. So NHS is a very good example. I mean, if individual hospitals that try to buy, say, drugs, at most uh, they'll buy, I don't know, diabetic drugs uh, for 100,000 people per year. If uh, NHS buys it, it'll be for 10 million people. And then you can get a huge discount. So there are certain things which may not be public goods in the sense that I was talking about earlier, but whose provision is subject to scale economy and therefore is cheaper to provide that through collective public provision. So you have to make this a positive argument. You can't just say, well, morally, you are obliged to pay these taxes because you are a citizen. And so that argument is partly an argument about value and the the value that people receive, not just the public goods value, but it's value for money too. So to bring it to British politics at the moment, because part of the reason we wanted to talk to you is that we are clearly post the election you published that piece it was quite prescient the way you published it just before the election we didn't know that the Labour manifesto would turn out to be Mm. more popular than people realized at the time and the Labour manifesto I mean it made a whole range of commitments though it used the language of burden it was more comfortable talking about raising tax to pay for the things that people need than we've seen in British politics for quite a while do you have a sense that the ground is starting to shift? And it, and it relates to your other point, which is about, in a sense, people need to see the benefits. We had the election, we had the terrible Grenfell Tower fire, right. and a kind of opening up of a public discussion about the costs mm. of neglecting public goods yeah, and yeah. public services. Yeah. So do you see a, a movement, maybe not in the fundamental rhetoric, mm. but in people's attitudes? Yeah, no, I think uh, the ground uh, is uh, shifting because, you know, when the Conservative Party won the election in 2010, I mean, they, it was actually quite a brilliant move. I mean, they redefined the whole economic narrative into one of government budget balance uh, from the financial crisis. Yeah? And the Labour Party kind of couldn't quite come out against it because a lot of the things that caused the financial crisis was done under their watch. Yeah? While they were kind of dithering, the conservatives came out, redefined the economic narrative into something of a kind of a fiscal crisis, you know, the balance that the budget, and then offered austerity as a solution. And I think a lot of people were initially persuaded by it. Now, unfortunately, they initially declared that we are going to get rid of this deficit in five years within the lifetime of this parliament. And then five became seven, and seven became 10, and it's going to be 15 and God knows, I mean, 20. So people are saying, hang on, I mean, uh, you said that this was going to be a short, painful adjustment, but then things will come back to normal. It hasn't. So I think that people have very become very skeptical about this uh, rhetoric. And secondly, this fiscal adjustment happened in all areas, but was particularly concentrated on the cutting down the basic social services. And with the, the incidents like Grenfell Tower, you know, people are beginning to see that, yes, I mean, Simply because it's uh, invisible, it doesn't mean that this uh, money evaporates into thin air, you know. And they begin to realize that there were actually values for these uh, public services. Because if it was a minor cut, I don't think people would have been so upset. But it really cut to the bone in some areas. And uh, it made people feel that, I mean, it was uh, something important. And it goes back to that point, people have to experience it. They haven't, it's not just the argument that's made by economists or anyone else. They have to experience it. And clearly they are starting to experience Mm -hmm. it. Something that struck me is people have started to say, oh, austerity is very unpopular. 
and something has changed. But it's, I don't think it was ever popular. I don't think anyone could claim that many people <laughs> thought this was a, something that they welcomed. What the Conservatives succeeded in doing, George Osborne in particular, is persuading people that though it was unpopular, it was necessary. Yeah, that's right. And the problem now is that people are no longer convinced that it is a necessity. And it's partly because Osborne has gone. I mean, he was the one. I remember seeing an interview with him, I think it was 2008, where he said in politics, you have to have one thing that you will not budge from and you organise everything else around that. And so he said, my thing is going to be the deficit, that the deficit is the central issue in British politics and we can organise everything around that. And so you could say the beginning of the end for that narrative was Theresa May's election or not election, actually, Mm -hmm. Theresa May, becoming Prime Minister before the general election and starting to talk about the sort of political options around this and that maybe there's room for a little bit of loosening of some of this, at which point people started to think, oh, it's not necessary. (laughs) It's just a political (laughs) contrivance. And in a way, the Conservatives are boxed in now. I mean, I don't know if you feel this, but when it's no longer absolutely necessary then they haven't got a leg to stand on. Exactly, yeah. No, no, they become the victim of their own success. I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, the earlier redefinition of the economic narrative around the issue of the budget and austerity was a brilliant move. But if you begin to say, yeah, I mean, that we feel that we could relax this a bit, and then people are going to ask, well, three years ago, you said that this is absolutely necessary, and we went along with it because we thought it was necessary. After all, it wasn't. So what are you talking about? I think that they are in a terrible situation because, you know, they cannot quite renounce it, but uh, they cannot quite defend it. So I think unless someone from the Conservative Party comes up with a totally different alternative in the kind of move that uh, George Osborne made some years ago, I think uh, they're in big trouble. And we still have Osborne and indeed David Cameron gave a speech a couple of weeks ago defending it. I mean, it doesn't also help that you've got the people who've kind of moved on saying, and maybe they're right, saying... You can't back away from this because this is the only thing that we've got. That's right. But it relates to the points that you're making about tax too, because another way in which it was argued that it was necessary, but its critics could say, well, if it was as necessary as you say it is, where did you have the room to cut taxes? Mm-hmm. Because if it was absolutely the central issue yeah. in politics, then some of the tax cuts that were also put through by the coalition and then the Conservative government look like a luxury. Exactly. And so the two things do come together, I think, the austerity. I mean, is that... That's right. No, no, that opened a big hole in the argument because they cut and are going to cut further the corporation tax. And Labour could very happily point out, we are not uh, overburdening the private sector. We are just uh, going back to 2009 or whatever yeah, by raising corporate taxation back to where it was, you know. And then <laughs> what do you say to that? Yeah? And they didn't have an answer. That's right, that. yeah. So I think that... Unfortunately, they really got themselves painted into a corner. I mean, I don't see it likely in the near future without a new leader and a new generation of strategies, which might take a few years to reinstall. I don't see how they can get out of this. I think you could argue under the British system, the only way they get out of it is actually a period of opposition. Because... (laughs) After all, then they have got something to define themselves against, which would be presumably a Corbyn government or maybe a coalition government involving Corbyn, maybe more likely a coalition government with Corbyn as the head. And though the Labour manifesto made some surprisingly popular but straightforward arguments 
along the lines that you just gave about the tax burden and about austerity. It also made quite a wide range of commitments that I don't think have been, as they say, fully costed. And since the election, maybe have gone further, for instance, no longer just talking about abolishing tuition fees, but also abolishing the debt that students currently have. Quite quite significant commitments. Is there a danger the other way? So we see the trap that the Conservatives are in. Is there a danger that the Labour Party is overcommitted to a range of public and other services and costs that would take it outside of the space of kind of, you talked about austerity, but we actually have this room into a space where the Tories can say you're endangering public finances. Well, I think that it depends on how they are going to play it, because if the Bank of England could print out so much money for the financial sector through so-called quantitative easing, Labour might come up with some equivalent for things they want to do. But what I'm trying to get at is that there will be bigger room for manoeuvre than people think. But yeah, eventually, unless they deliver the long-term growth and productivity increase and so on, they will not be able to finance all this because in the end, I mean, the taxes will have to be generated mostly through private sector activities. And unless they put in a good industrial strategy and strategy for long-term research and so on, in the long run, they won't be able to generate all these extra resources. So let's see. And is the underlying problem the one that we hear about a lot, which neither party or no British government has managed to address successfully, which is the productivity Mm. issue? Do you see ways in which a Labour government of the kind we just described could take significant steps towards making the British economy more productive, closing Mm. the productivity gap? Yes, I think uh, the Labour parties are more aware of this issue and uh, buried in all this debate about budget and so on. They did uh, produce industrial uh, strategy document, which uh, although sketchy, uh, is uh, going the right direction. Yes, I mean, the problem is uh, not just you, you know, I mean, lagging productivity performance of the British uh, economy has been an issue for at least the last century. And <laughs> especially since uh, the financial crisis, I mean, of the major industrial economies, Britain has seen the lowest uh, rate of productivity growth. And it's uh, one of the few OECD countries that has experienced uh, negative wage growth and so on. So I think the problem is uh, a lot more serious here. And, you know, other countries, whatever their past rhetoric might have been, actually have been uh, gearing into action to reorganize the economy, invest in new areas. You know, Americans are very good at uh, saying one thing and doing another. You know, They say we are a free enterprise economy, but they have a huge uh, government-supported research through the defense program and the healthcare program and so on. The Germans, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with the sort of rhetoric, but uh, they have been talking about Industry 4.0. You know, the Japanese uh, government have been reactivating uh, its uh, industrial policy in certain areas. Now we have, you know, at least uh, some talk of industrial strategy, but I don't know whether they have put any of those things into action. So I think uh, the prospect is uh, a bit worrying, but recognizing the problem is the start of a solution. So let's hope that something happens. And it is one of the things that both parties have been talking about. It's one of the areas where Theresa May moved on from the coalition austerity story when she became prime minister to start to talk about an industrial strategy, to talk about investment in infrastructure and so on. So I was very struck by a an article in The Guardian by Larry Elliott Mm. earlier this week 
where he talked about the, the present government's industrial strategy, the areas in which it wants to invest. And I think like lots of governments, it, it looks to invest in areas that it sees as high tech yeah. and sort of investment in the future. And one of the points he made was, whatever other benefits those areas might bring, it won't be jobs, mm-hmm. almost certainly. that They're talking about investing in forms of industry yeah. that don't seem to provide on the evidence of recent yeah. years much employment Mm -hmm. and the way he put it was it'll be great for somewhere like Cambridge this is what struck me about the article and I'm not sure Cambridge needs more investment but the benefits will be quite narrowly concentrated and they will not produce what still is a key part we talked about tax we talked about public services but jobs so where should the British government invest which areas what kind of industrial strategy do you think would get out of that sort of yeah. Cambridge trap of yeah. putting the money in the sexy future, yeah, yeah. which is actually the job-killing future. <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, except in, you know, poor developing countries, just uh, starting industrialization like uh, South Korea in the 1960s or China in the 1990s, you know, jobs are mainly going to be created in non-high-tech sectors. You know, I mean, if you are South Korea of the 1960s, yes, uh, you get into textile and then you produce huge amount of uh, jobs in manufacturing. But... At the stage of development where Britain is, South Korea is uh, today, the leading sectors are not going to create jobs. So you have to do things uh, to make sure that they contribute indirectly to creating jobs. So there are, say, three channels. Uh, One is a more market-driven channel. When the leading sector grows, I mean, they will be suppliers emerging to supply them. And uh, people earning money from those uh, leading sectors are spending the money that creates other jobs. So that's the first uh, more market-based channel. And could that work through the, the technology investment that the government is well, talking I mean, about? Because it's, uh, uh, it's still quite concentrated, Exactly. Isn't it? Unfortunately, that is uh, not enough. So there are other things that government can do to create jobs possible by using the tax proceeds uh, to create further public sector jobs in old age care and education and so on. But secondly, also, he could use uh, some of the proceeds to invest in less vibrant areas in more basic things, you know, infrastructure and uh, local skills and so on to create lesser industries, but that will create more jobs. But even in the area of uh, the more market-based mechanism, I mean, the government has to do certain things to maximize its impact because one problem with the British economy these days is that its uh, industrial base has been so thinned out that even if some high-tech company in Cambridge uh, wants to buy a lot of uh, machines and to conduct its research and production, those machines will come from Germany rather than the rest of Britain. So the the government has to identify certain areas where there are obvious uh, potential suppliers but uh, cannot quite meet the German standard and try to identify what they need. I mean, is it because of lack of skilled workers or problem with certain supply chain or local infrastructure? So I I think even there, the government has to do certain things to make sure that this market-based job creation within the private sector is maximized because otherwise you might pour money into growing these high-tech companies in Cambridge and then they'll be all buying things from Germany or Japan. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do, do you think that in various visions that people have of the future of work and the future of employment, one of the things that you mentioned there was the possibility of the growth of the public sector in areas like health and mm-hmm. education. And there are some people who think that actually that is where the jobs of the future are going to come. So it goes back to sort of what we were talking about at the beginning, that we have a narrative that frames public sector jobs as yeah. often sort of government jobs that are a sort of political convenience and private sector jobs are the real jobs because they've been generated That's by true. sort of entrepreneurship yeah. or whatever. But actually it could be that the public sector is where we need the investment for the future because most jobs are going to be actually either centrally or around the edges of things like healthcare yeah, exactly. and education. Yeah. But there's a political problem there too, which is the one that I've just mentioned. Yeah. Most people think of that as a burden on the state. That's right, yeah. They think that if the state's employing yeah, yeah, most yeah. people, the state is living beyond yeah. its means. I mean, is that... I, I still see a political barrier yeah, in the sure. way of someone saying, you know, my vision of the future uh-huh. is government support and investment yeah. to create more jobs... Yeah. Whether you're working for the government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, once again, you have to change the way you see these things. I mean, first of all, there has to be a recognition that uh, some of the areas that the public sector covers has a huge uh, need for jobs uh, because the population is aging, you know, the requirement for education is rising because of international competition. So these are areas where you need more input. And uh, secondly, you know, you have to argue that uh, some of these uh, the public spending are, I mean, really investment in the workers, you know. I mean, if you educate children well, they'll become more productive uh, workers in the future. So it's not entirely kind of uh, consumption. There's the investment element. Thirdly, the, the most important thing to point out to shift the political rhetoric is uh, to discuss the efficiency of some of these public provisions, you know. The, the take healthcare, you know. The Americans spend 17% of GDP on healthcare-related things, you know. And uh, other rich countries spend between 9 and 11% of GDP on healthcare. I mean, the Britain's, I think, about 9%. The highest is like uh, Switzerland at 11.5, France 11. So they basically spend between 50 and 100% more on healthcare than other countries where they don't necessarily have NHS, but there's a public insurance and a lot of public provision. Compared to those countries, American health statistics that uh, is the worst. I mean, it has uh, infant mortality worse than some of the developing countries. You know, it's the uh, life expectancies that only something like 35th in the world and so on. And this is uh, in large part because of the inefficiency of the healthcare provision through the private system. Yeah? I'm not saying that provision through private sector is the always inefficient. But when it comes to things like healthcare and education, I think that countries with large elements of uh, public provision and insurance perform much better. And you have to tell people these things because most people just know about their own experience. And uh, at most, they have what 
things were like uh, 10 years ago to compare. And when you uh, begin to do that, of course, uh, with the aging population and restraint on the health spending, the healthcare the performance is getting worse. So people think, well, the government is just uh, not doing very well. But we have to explain to people these are structural problems and these are things that we have to do. We have been doing actually relatively well, especially compared to countries like the U.S. People will be open to that kind of persuasion. There seems to be some anecdotal evidence coming out of the election that the NHS and healthcare, those kinds of arguments traditionally in the British case have been made quite successfully. The NHS is a very popular institution, but people have struggled to make the argument elsewhere. But there, there are some signs now that in the last election, education was a core issue. There was a focus on very young people and tuition fees. I say very young, 18 to 24. But the the really striking age band is kind of people between about 26 and 40 who voted in large numbers for Labour, many of whom switched from the Conservatives. And this is anecdotal. There isn't a lot of data behind it. But it seems that their experience of their children's schooling for many of them was very important. But they did recognise that austerity in their experience, as you said, it's not just an argument. Yeah. It really bit in schooling, right. and they noticed it. Exactly. So so there's a possibility that it is starting to move. I mean, yeah. the, the NHS is, is kind of this separate part of British yeah. politics in That's a right. way, yeah. but that the space is expanding. Exactly. Yeah, no, in the, the case in education yeah. has always been harder to mm. make in those terms. That's right, but uh, once again, I mean, cutting the spending to the bones, I think, uh, really made a difference in people's lived experience because when the schools are begging parents to give them money to take them to a small the school trip, then the parents begin to say, well, what, what is going on? Yeah? It's not just that number of children in the class increased from 32 on average to 36. You know, you hardly notice that. But when it is cut to the bones and when they are asking for money for even the most basic things, you know, people are beginning to ask questions. One of the problems I think that Corbyn faces is he doesn't just run against the Conservative Party. He also runs against the Blair years. That's one of his calling cards, which is no good happened when Tony Blair was Prime Minister. But a lot of good did happen when Tony Blair was Prime Minister. And one was significant investment in education. And I think, again, it's only anecdotal, but people remember that. In a sense, there is a, it's recent enough that there's a memory of what it felt like when schools were being reasonably well supported by the state. And one of the things I think Corbyn is slightly trapped by himself is not being able to talk positively about the years of investment because the years of investment were the Blair Brown years. I mean, it was a good economic climate and they didn't face the tough choices and maybe not all of the investment was wise and they also didn't maybe present the case in a way that Corbyn would like. But they did put money into public services. Yeah, Yeah, no. in that sense, uh, yes. I mean, Labour needs to come to full terms with the Blair years. You know? It wasn't just the Iraq war, exactly, right? yeah. which in Corbyn's mind it is. It's That's just right. like <laughs> it looms over everything else. That's right. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, that has, uh, I think, made productive debate rather difficult. But yes, I mean, in the area of education, especially things like Sure Start, you know, I mean, there's an increasing amount of evidence coming out that early learning is extremely important. So I think they've done some things very well. So I think they have to really be able to say that these were good things, we are going to continue with that or even expand them. These were the bad things, we are not going to go there again. And I think that uh, will be a more mature form of politics. I mean, unfortunately, not just uh, here, but everywhere. I mean, 
people want all or nothing attitude towards their political enemy or heroes. Uh, so it's uh, not easy, but I'm, I'm sure that uh, it can be done. So could we finish by giving you a chance to sort of reflect on the UK case relative to other places? Because you travel around the world, you speak to governments, you've just come back from Ghana, I think. You advise developing countries and others about industrial strategy and other things. So we've been focusing on Britain. And some of the things we've been talking about are universal phenomena, but some of them are distinctive to the British case. Do you think that the economic and political problems that Britain faces at the moment are broadly the same as those faced by other countries in Europe and in the developed world? Or do you think we should be thinking harder about what's distinctively problematic in the British yeah. case? Well, I mean, of course, uh, there are some general challenges like uh, new technologies, you know, shifting global economic balance of power. But I think there is uh, one distinctive British problem, which is the overdevelopment of the financial sector. And I don't use this uh, term lightly. I mean, you know, the way the British financial industry earns money, the way the British corporations are governed these days uh, largely by institutional investors. I mean, these have been basically very short-term oriented. And uh, especially in this era of uh, major technological shift, a lot of uh, long-term investment, some projects will definitely fail, you know, that's in the nature of uh, entrepreneurship. A lot of uh, long-term investment uh, have to be made, and uh, I'm not sure that this country has uh, a financial and corporate uh, system that uh, can do that. You know, I mean, one anecdotal striking example is that British University, Manchester University, uh, invented this uh, new material called graphene, and the scientists who did that, although they were recruited from Russia, you know, they got the Nobel Prize and all that. Despite that, if you look at the world map of graphene technology, Britain has only about 2% of our world patterns that are related to graphene. Yeah? I mean, the Chinese, the Koreans, and the Germans, that they have the most patterns. Of course, I mean, patterns that uh, have to be translated into commercially viable products. So I'm not saying that they are necessarily going to succeed, but this already shows how some countries are able to make uh, investments in this uh, currently relatively speculative uh, new technology while British uh, companies and government are not. So I think that that is a a distinctively British problem. And we'll have to all sit down and bash our heads together to solve that. Is it primarily in your minds a political problem? That is the barriers in the way of addressing it are political? Or are they more deeply structural in that you talked earlier about a hundred year story about Mm -hmm. productivity and some of these things go way back. But if you look at it now, and we are no question in a period of political change, this has been an incredible couple of years, tumultuous couple of years. Lots of new options have opened up. But is there a danger by focusing on the politics we're missing the deeper structural causes? Yes, I mean, it is a structural issue. After all, I mean, what more can be structural than who owns what and who controls what part of the productive economy? But But, also what could be more political than that? That's right, yeah. But uh, I think there are, some uh, things that are not so radical, I mean, at least in terms of changing the structure, that could shift things uh, quite significantly. For example, you know, if uh, the short-term oriented nature of uh, finance is a problem, why not kind of introduce a different kind of voting system in companies 
where long-term shareholders have more votes. Yeah? So if you own one share for one year, you get one vote. But if you own it for three years, you get, say, two votes. If you own it for five years, you get that uh, seven. You know, if you have uh, owned it for 15 years, uh, you get 100 or something. Yeah? This uh, wouldn't require, I mean, of course, uh, politically it would uh, require a big change, but in technical terms, it's uh, not like you have to, I don't know, nationalize all the companies and, you know, lock up the capitalists somewhere, you know. I think uh, there are relatively simple, technically simple things that can be done to mitigate these problems because, uh, you know, I mean, you cannot make these uh, revolutionary changes, you know. You have to do it given what you have, but even within that confines, I think uh, there are things that you can do with corporate governance and uh, tax system and so on that can push things into the right direction. We've been putting out a series of podcasts where we ask people who regularly contribute to suggest summer reading, not beach reading on the whole, but (laughs) some of it is beach reading, but things that help them make sense of the world as as it changes so rapidly. So Harjun, apart from your own writing, and we'll, we'll tweet links to that, are there things you think that people should read, reasonably accessible things, mm. that would help make sense of some of the stuff we've been talking about? Yes, uh, well, the, the things uh, we have talked about, I can think of three things uh, that are good to read and easy to read. So one is uh, this book called Whoops by John Lanchester. Who we, the, John, yeah. who we had on this podcast right, a yeah. few months ago. Yeah, and he, uh, He's a novelist, but he wrote that brilliant book, uh, which uh, made all of these difficult financial things uh, very understandable. Another is this book called Austerity by Mark Blythe. It uh, really gives you the evidence and the argument and counter-arguments about uh, all this debate about the uh, financial crisis and austerity. And we hope to have him on this podcast soon. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, I think uh, the, this book uh, called The Entrepreneurial State uh, by Mariana Masukato is... Uh, Who we also had on this podcast. <laughs> so the great minds, I think, alike. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, Matsukato's book explains to you how the state can contribute to making the economy more productive. And traditionally, people have uh, seen the state and the private sector as uh, some kind of uh, opposing forces. And she's actually arguing there how that uh, that shouldn't be the case, that doesn't have to be the case, and that the two can work together to create a more productive economy. Thanks very much to Harjun. We will tweet links to the things that Harjun has mentioned. If you join us next week, you'll get more recommendations from regular podcast contributors about beach and non-beach reading. We're gearing up for August. They say you should never go away from politics in August because that's when the big things happen, wars and so on. If they do, we'll uh, reconvene to discuss them. Otherwise, do please join us next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.